Uh, before we jump into the text itself, I want to set the stage with some conversation. So um, I know it's, you know, you just sat down in Sunday school and you might be ready to just kind of be comfortable in your chair and you're not quite ready to do the mental calisthenics required to have conversation and discussion, but try to, uh, to get your, uh, your mental juices flowing here and think about this question. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it um, for, for a good little bit here. So I'm not just looking for one person to answer this question, but I'd like it to be a little bit of a back and forth here for a bit. My question for you is, um, is it good, and I'm, I'm asking this question in a very simple way um, because it has some dimension to it, is it good for us to compare ourselves to others? Is it good for us to compare ourselves for others? I ask it that way, and I'm kind of inviting one kind of response. But let me just change one word. Is it ever good for us to compare ourselves to others? That gives it a little bit more dimension and suggestion. Maybe there is a time it's good to compare ourselves to others, right? So think about that from either side. Um, you could be right answering that yes and no, I think, okay? So let's hear some of those answers to, that, that come to your mind when you hear that question. Depends on who the others are. Hey, that's a very good insight. Absolutely. What's the standard you're comparing yourself to, right? Yeah, if it's, um, you want to elaborate on that a little bit more? No, I'll be teaching my lessons. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. No, no worries. <laughs> Does anybody else want to elaborate on that more or add another response? Is it ever good to compare yourselves, yourself to others? I think it is. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I think it is. I, I go to the women's prayer group on Monday mornings. Mm -hmm. The women there are so godly and... I like to compare myself to them. Am I up to their standards? Am I yeah. doing what they're doing? Yeah. So there, there can be something healthy about what you're describing there, right? What's the standard you're comparing yourself to? You know, is it, is it a good godly example to, to look at? And what's the desire it's stirring in my heart? You know, and, uh, you know, imitating people's godliness is actually something commanded in Scripture, right? Mm -hmm. And there can naturally be some comparison involved in seeing that. When I see other brothers who are earnestly following after the Lord, and I want to do the same, and I recognize I'm not, that's a good thing, right? That is a good thing. Um, but there's a negative side to this as well. I mean, the first response I saw was everybody shaking their head, no, no, you should not compare yourselves to others, right? What other thoughts? I was thinking um, uh, it's... Um, if you, like, if, if you're not condemning yourself, but convicting yourself, like, God can use, you know, yeah. same with, um, you know, we are called to point out someone's sin, not judging them, because God calls us to do that. There's a particular kind of, so in that regard, you know, we have to be careful, like, how we're comparing ourselves to someone else and um, yeah, I think I'm articulating it very well, but. 
Well, you, you, you've got two, two elements there that I think are, are helpful. Like, um, what you do with the information in the comparison, how you use that, um, is, it, um, is it to a point of discouragement of yourself, condemning yourself? It, it, there, there's something unhealthy that can be there for sure. Um, it, and I think that Satan's lies. Satan yeah. can use that type of thought mm -hmm. to condemn you and to think you're hopeless. And, you know, yeah, yeah. Keep you down. But then on the other hand, you also talk about um, you know, a responsibility we have to be engaged in seeing other people's behavior and challenging it sometimes um, as well. So, good. What else? What other thoughts do you have when you think about this question of, is it, is it ever right for us to compare ourselves to others? For it? Against it? Just kind of share what you, what you think when you hear that question. We're all gifted with different talents. Hey, good. Yeah. And, and so when we compare ourselves to others, if we're wanting to be that other yeah. person, yeah. and that's not how God gifted us, right. Then there's some and and that, I think that gifting concept actually extends beyond just a spiritual gifts category to like I, when Paul talks in Romans 12 about spiritual gifts, he, he's talking about us taking an, a sober assessment of all that God has stewarded us with, not just spiritual gifts, resources, circumstances, relationships, everything. And if my comparison is an apples to orange comparison, right? I mean, this is, when we lived overseas, it's a very common experience for cross-cultural workers to look at each other, even in different contexts. So I would look at a friend of mine in Tanzania and see him raising his kids in the Tanzanian village where they were fluent in Swahili. And I'm raising my kids in China where they were not living in the Chinese village. They were, they were in an English-only environment in in a, in, a, in a school, in an international school, and they did not learn Mandarin on the level of fluency that my friend's kids did. And I'm comparing apples and oranges. And it becomes this thing in my heart that is unhealthy, right, in that kind of comparison when we, when we do it that way. Um, we can certainly get into a trap of caring too much of what others think. Uh, we can become demotivated. But on the other hand, we can you know, choose the wrong... Identify like the wrong standard for our comparison, and we can settle for too low of a standard for our comparison, right? Like I, I see, you know, I'm doing all right compared to, you know, a standard that isn't high enough, right? Um, so we can uh, we can do that in a lot of ways. But but coming then to the to the benefits side, um, there are certain things in our lives that we really only learn by example. There, there are certain things that are far better caught than taught, right? And being able to look at someone's life and say, wow, that's what hospitality looks like. Now, I don't know how you learn hospitality just by reading commands in the scripture to do hospitality. Like, those commands are great. Don't get me wrong. But, like, seeing it evidenced in somebody's life, there's nothing like that to help you. And then you compare, like, you know, I, I just don't welcome people I don't ask what good enough questions like they, you, you, you see what I mean? Seeing it just makes such a difference as we, um, as we think about it. So our text this morning has two critical comparisons in it. One 
is comparing the authority of Jesus, you know, between the concept of him being the son of David versus being the son of man. That's not really, you know, parallel to our discussion here. But the other comparison is a comparison between the scribes and a poor widow. And we are invited to compare ourselves looking at those two examples at, at the end. So I want you to uh, be thinking about that. And I thought it would be healthy for us to just ask that question right from the beginning about how we think about comparing ourselves um, and how it can be healthy and how it can, can also be unhealthy. So like so many things in life, it's a, it's a both and, not just a black and white um, yes or no to a question like that. So we started this conversation about comparison because our passage has these two key comparisons. But let's, um, before we look at these two key comparisons, on the right side of the handout, and as I, I came short with, um, with handouts this morning. Uh, I haven't known exactly. Do you need it? Um, I don't need it. But um, if you have, maybe, it, it, can somebody, can some people share with people next to them? So you guys got a copy. Nathan Miller, did you get a copy? Not, you can peek over? Okay. Yeah, but he just gave it to me. All right. <laughs> All right. So everybody scooch closer and, and look over somebody's shoulder, whatever you need to do. Um, so I want to start by just going back through the overall context that you see. And I will steal this, but I'll hold it here close enough for you to see. Over here on the right side of the sheet, I'm okay. On the right side of the sheet, you see the flow of the passage going all the way back into chapter 11, maybe even the, yeah, in chapter 11. Jesus is cleansing the temple. He curses the fig tree. And then the Jewish leaders start to ask their, well, they ask their first question. And it's really the, the core question. And that question is, by what authority do you do these things? And it's not a friendly question, right? Like, you know, the, the, um, the substitute teacher's in the classroom, and the kid is questioning the teacher's authority. He's, he's not really asking that question because he wants to know. Um, he's saying, you don't have authority, right? That's the question that the scribes are, are posing to Jesus. Jesus throws a question back at them. Tell me about John the Baptist. Did he come from God or not, right? And they're not willing to answer Jesus' trap question because they know that if they answer it, they're in trouble. So then they come back to Jesus with three tough questions. And last week, we looked at those three questions, right? And we saw how those three questions cast a spotlight on Jesus' authority. And they show that his authority is worthy of our trust, right? Jesus is asked the question about paying taxes. And what does he say? The spotlight shining on Jesus there is, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And it's a beautiful display of Jesus' unrivaled authority and his wisdom to respond to a trick question, right? And, and, and actually, in many other ways, it displays who Jesus is. And then he's asked the question about the resurrection, right? Another trick question. And he goes to the grammar of the Old Testament when God tells Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of your fathers. Not in the past tense, but in the present tense. And so he is the God of, not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, right? So, so we're seeing, like, we cannot look at these answers Jesus gives without being overwhelmed 
and, and wanting to bow and sing and worship and pray and celebrate who he is. His authority is stunningly displayed. And then the last question he's asked, what's the last question he's asked? By, not by the scribes in this case, but by one, by one scribe. The what's the greatest command? It's, it's like a question like, what's the sum of all of Scripture? What's the message of the good news of the Messiah? What, you know, I mean, what, what, how do you summarize everything that's ever been revealed by God to his prophets? That's a big question. And Jesus' wisdom again shines through in an unrivaled way, displaying his authority as a teacher. So in all of that context then, I kind of skimmed over last week the very last sentence in verse 34, I think it's verse 34 in chapter 12, which is just the last sentence before we start our passage today. So what does that last sentence say? Can somebody read it out loud for us loudly? And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> I mean, what a great summary by Mark there at that moment, right? Like, uh, that just captures the wonder and the power of the display of Jesus' authority that was shown there for all to see. Nobody dared to ask him any more questions. They were not going to trip him up in his words as they were hoping to in this environment. So, verse 34 ends there, and now what's going to happen next is kind of the question. Uh, so let's read our passage. Today we're looking at verses 35 on to the end of the chapter Verse, down to verse 44. So let's read all of this, and then we'll come back and walk through it together. So in verse 35, remember, we're in the temple, so Mark tells us, and Jesus taught in the temple, and he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, the, the promised king, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues, and, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So this is the first side of the comparison that he gives us. And then the second side, and he sat down opposite the treasury, which was also within the, the temple precincts. He sits opposite the treasury where people are giving their their offerings, their financial giving, beware, uh, I'm sorry, he, he sat down across from the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. 
So as we look at this passage, I think this passage, um, I mean, it clearly shows us right at the beginning that Jesus is not done with this authority question that he was asked earlier. We're going all the way back into the beginning of chapter 11 where he's asked this question about by what authority he does these things. And that really still is the focus of this passage. We're, We're asking the question, what kind of authority does the promised king really possess? And we're kind of at the climax of the answer to that question. What kind of authority does the promised king really possess? I'm using that term promised king interchangeably with the term Christ, interchangeably with the term Messiah, right? Trying to capture for us, because we don't necessarily immediately think about all of the prophecy of the Old Testament pointing toward the Christ. We think of Christ more as a title for Jesus we really should be thinking of it as this whole chain of history, the promises of this coming king, um, you know, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So, so what kind of authority does the promised king really possess? And I think this passage gives us two related answers to that question. What kind of authority does this, he possess? Um, the first answer I think it, the text gives is the promised king's authority is ultimate. His authority is ultimate. And because it is, because nothing can trump the authority of the king of kings, that ultimate authority deserves our unrivaled devotion. So there's the, there's the takeaway sentence here for us this morning. The ultimate authority of the promised king deserves our unrivaled authority. Or you could just simply say, ultimate authority deserves unrivaled devotion. So let's see how this passage bears this out. So looking first at verses 35 through 37, the first section of our passage, um, we, we really encounter the first half of this. What kind of authority does God's promised king possess? Well, Jesus comes with this question. Now, I want to ask you this. If you, um, if you were in Jesus's shoes in this moment, is Psalm 110 about David and his son, is that the first passage you would go to to try and prove your authority? When you read what David, uh, what Jesus does here, sorry, the angle's not that great. When you read what Jesus does here, does it not strike you a little bit odd? Honestly, as I read through those previous three questions that he was asked and the answers he gives, I'm cheering, I'm excited, I'm impressed, I'm awed in worship, and then he comes to this, and it's like, huh? This seems kind of academic or kind of obscure. What is going on here? And I think a lot of that comes because of a lot of cultural difference, distance that we have between um, how a first century Jew would hear what Jesus said in this moment and how we ourselves hear what he says here. So we're in this section here where Jesus asks, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Well, um, part of our problem with this question is that Jesus is the son of David, right? So why is he asking this question? So it can be a little confusing because it's like, is he questioning his lineage, you know, in, in in the line of David? Is that what he's doing? And his last, I mean, he finishes by saying, so how is he David's son? 
You're like, well, he is still, isn't he? Right? And, and the point that Jesus is making at this stage is not to call into question that the Messiah is David's son. The question, you could really just add in one word. Is he merely David's son? Is he just David's son? And, and now you understand what Jesus is getting at. And, and I think his audience just quickly understood. They didn't think Jesus was questioning whether he was David's, the Messiah was David's son. They understood he was saying, he's more than that. There's something larger at work here. So up to this point, the Jewish leaders have been silenced. The debate is over, but Jesus keeps at it. He's not satisfied to just respond to their questions. Because that would really just leave us with a human agenda driving our understanding of his authority, right? They came with the questions, Jesus answered them. But now we're going to hear his divine perspective on his authority. We need to see Jesus set the agenda for the discussion here, and that's exactly what he does. If we had time, we could go back to 2 Samuel and the promises that were made to David about an heir of his who would reign in a way that David never reigned right? David is promised a, a future heir to his throne, and the description of his dominion, his kingdom, far exceed anything that David ever experienced. And so we're, we're looking back in, in the, the audience that Jesus, Jesus is speaking to are clearly hearing this at this moment in, in, in relationship to the promises that were made to David all the way back in 2 Samuel. There's, um, there's really a connection uh, in this passage here that we're looking at now with the, the parable that was made for those tenant farmers uh, as well. That is, what is the relationship between the Son of God and Israel's current rulers? Um, is he just, is, is, is Jesus just, uh, is the Messiah just another descendant in the line of David, or does he have a claim to authority that's even greater than that? Um, I think it's helpful for us at this moment when Jesus raises this question about the, the Christ, right? It's helpful for us to pause and think about what we've heard about the Christ up to this point in Mark's gospel. Really quick, Mark chapter 1. It begins in verse 1 by saying, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not just the son of David, the son of God. Um, we see in chapter 9 and verse 7, God's testimony in the cloud. We see um, Peter say in chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus is the Christ. So Jesus here in this passage doesn't actually directly attach himself to this claim of Messiahship, right? He just asks generically about the Messiah without directly claiming himself to be that Messiah in this moment. But we know that in Mark's gospel, that claim has already been made by Peter, and, Peter, and Jesus did not reject his statement about him being the Christ. We know that Bartimaeus called out to Jesus in chapter 10, referring to him as the son of David, having seen and understood him in that way already. And we also know that just now, having entered Jerusalem, Jesus was greeted by the chants of the crowd, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So with all of that context here, Jesus quotes this psalm, focus Psalm 110, 
focusing exclusively on the first half of this psalm. I was intending to have this written on the board already, but we need to look at what is quoted here just for a second. So he says in, in, um, in verse uh, 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord. And that's really the focus of Jesus' quotation. He doesn't focus on the last half directly, which is about his authority. But he says, he says, the Lord, and then um, I'm going to give some space there, uh, said to my Lord. Now, um, who is the Lord here and who is the Lord here? actually becomes a very important question for us to answer to understand what's going on here. And we need to understand this in two different ways. When David wrote this psalm, this psalm, Psalm 110, is one of those royal psalms, which Americans have a hard time with, right? Because we don't like royalty. Because we throw the king's tea in the ocean. We don't bow to kings. But and this is a critical understanding. I mean, like, we have a hard to, we have trouble with authority, us Americans. And that's really helpful for us to understand this passage. Because that's what this passage is all about. Even political authority. Even governmental authority. Um, ultimate authority. So, when David wrote this psalm, uh, so, David would really be here, right? Or, the psalmist would be here. And his Lord would be the king of Israel, right? This, this word Lord that's used here is Adonai in Hebrew, which is not a word that is always referring to God, right? It's a word that's sometimes referring to, you know, like lords and ladies, that kind of Lord in our, in our language, right? It's not referring to properly to God with a capital L. Here, then, this would be this would be Jehovah God, right? So, um, in this case, in a royal psalm kind of context, the original context of this psalm was really saying that that God is going to establish the authority of His King, and that would have been true, and it would have been sung. Psalm one ten would have been sung by the people of Israel as a new king was coronated. Okay, so that's kind of the um, the original context, right? But is, is that what Jesus is doing with this psalm at this moment? No, no, he's recognizing that in the original context, the author of, of this psalm was looking at Israel in that moment, but he was even speaking better than he knew, looking to a future king who was coming. And so it captured both of those things, and the author may not have fully even grasped what he was saying in that moment. But, as the text says, uh, we have a great little um, reminder about the inspiration of Scripture in this moment. What does he say? He says, David said in the Holy Spirit. So you actually end up with the Trinity in this passage in just a moment when we see it. David said in the Holy Spirit. That is, directed by the Holy Spirit, David said the Lord. And so, and so now Jesus' interpretation of this is the Lord Jehovah again. Right? So I'll just, I'll just bring that down. Said to my Lord, who is, in, in his approach to this, is the Christ. 
And in Jesus' day, this interpretation was already embraced in common. Um, so they recognized that the psalm was used this way originally, but they also had come to recognize that this psalm was actually talking bigger than just to a son of David in, you know, in the history of the lineage of all the sons of David, but it was actually speaking about the Messiah coming. But, but really, that's not that much, their interpretation of this was not that much different than this here. They were still looking at a human king, right? So when we look at the, the, the work that Jesus is doing with this passage, the Lord uh, said to my Lord, he is, you know, as Jesus makes it very clear here, he is, he is saying that if David then still is referring to if David now is referring to the king of Israel as his Lord, what has he done to his authority? Like David is the greatest king of Israel, indisputably, in, in history. If David calls him Lord, and what does that say about who this Messiah Christ king is, right? It's very hard for us to draw an analogy to, to follow this in our day today. We don't like kings. Um, we, don't, we don't trust kings and their authority, uh, and we don't, we don't think about um, our political system in this kind of context. So, I, I mean, you can't really say, you know, anything about George Washington or a great president or, you know, pick an authority on anything. We, we really can't use an analogy to help us understand this directly. Um, but we can pause and, and approach it in this kind of way. Um, we all have hopes in something to rescue and save us from our current condition. And I'm saying that very broadly and generally. The people of Israel's hopes for rescue and salvation were resting in a promised Messiah. Their understanding of that Messiah was someone who was made of the same stuff as David. It was a, a human savior that they were looking for. And so I'm going to step into politics one more time like I did last week and tell you that if your hope for the rescue of our nation is in a political character who is made of the same stuff as Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and, dare I even say, Ronald Reagan, then your hopes are not great enough. You're, you're not resting your hope in an ultimate authority. We need a Lord greater than any of those characters that we can place our hope and arrest in, right? Um, there is a fundamental principle in biblical theology that we need to understand the distinction between the created order and the creator. There's a distinction between the creator and the created, right? And what Israel was doing was they were placing their hopes inside of the created order. And what American Christians often do is they place their hopes in a political character within, within the created order. And we cannot, we cannot do that. I'm not saying we should not cast votes with, with clear consciences even though we're voting for people who we don't fully respect. I, there's, there's all kinds of nuance here, right? 
But my ultimate hope and my ultimate authority cannot rest in those individuals who have been created by God. It has to rest in, in God himself. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is he, is he is throwing down the final answer to this question. There is no authority greater than the authority that the Messiah has because he has divine authority. Because he's not merely the son of man. He is the son of God. He calls David his son. <laughs> he is not just the son of David, but David is his son. He's the king of David, not the other way around. David is not his king. Do, do you see that? It's, it's hard to feel that because of the cultural distance, the historical distance, because I have not grown up as a Jew hoping in the coming of the Messiah like these people had. But I hope trying to think it through in those kinds of ways helps us understand what Jesus is doing here really is magnificent, just laying down with absolute clarity to his audience that his authority is ultimate. Now, he doesn't actually make the claim that it's his. He just makes the claim that the Messiah's authority is ultimate. It's divine. It's from God himself. So that's the first half of the question that we see um, when we ask this question, um, what is the, the, the nature of what kind of authority does the promised king really possess? Is it just on the human level? And the answer is no. His authority is ultimate authority. And now in the last five minutes that we have left together this morning, um, we look at the, the, the two sections at the end here where Jesus then contrasts the scribes with this poor widow. And here he says more about the nature of his authority by showing us what kind of response that authority deserves. So we come then to that, that theme statement. Ultimate authority demands unrivaled devotion. So on the first side of this, we see the promised king's unworthy representatives, Israel's self-loving leaders. These guys don't get it, right? In his teaching, he said in verse 38, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Maybe you've seen a movie representing the scribes, and they have those... Um, Talits, which is like this long prayer shawl that comes across their head and all the way down, like along with their tunic and everything, often with like blue stripes is the way it's, it's like white and blue is the way it's represented. And I think that's actually probably fairly accurate because it's a historical tradition that continues to this day. Um, so, so they love to wear those because of the attention it draws for them, right? Um, they love greetings in the marketplaces, which you're like, I'm an American. I like to say, hey, how are you doing? And that's all I care about. But in an honor-shame culture, if you don't say how you doing with the right, um, you know, Mr. Sir proper title to me, and I'm in an honor-shame culture like this culture was, you just disrespected me. And that's not cool, okay? That's how the scribes were thinking here. Um, they enjoy, we understand liking the best seats, right, because our kids run to get shotgun in our car um, when we're going, going to church in the morning. Um, the, the places of honor at feasts. And, and you're going along and you're reading this and you're like, these are parallel ideas. We're hearing about what the scribes like. We're hearing about what they have. We're hearing now about what they do. And verse 40 is a shocking statement. They devour widows' houses. And they're like, what on earth? <laughs> I mean, that's quite an image, right? Like, they just gobble them up. 
And there's actually historical evidence that shows, and this just this quick phrase that Jesus uses actually summarizes the situation that we actually aren't that unfamiliar with, right? We're not unfamiliar with religious shysters who take advantage of, you know, of the elderly uh, with just a show and with flattery and, and uh, there's no real sincerity or genuine authority in what they're doing, right? And during this time, there were actually scribes who were famous for, you know, setting up a whole elaborate system, inviting contributions from widows that then they just embezzled for themselves. Uh, and this appears to be what Jesus is referencing here at this moment. They make a pretense for long prayers, and they will receive the greater condemnation. So in this comparison, it's very obvious and clear that these men are not representatives of a proper response to Jesus' ultimate authority. There are rivals in their devotion to Jesus' authority, to the Messiah's authority, uh, and that is themselves. Uh, their self-love uh, is in the way of having the proper response to Jesus' authority. And then we conclude with this beautiful story about this poor widow. And we have many questions when we read this story. Like, um, you know, we have a fairly strong, uh, a fairly strong conscience against knowing what other people are putting into the offering plate, right? Like, have you ever been walking by the offering box outside and saw somebody putting something in, and you're just kind of quickly like, yeah, I'm going over here this way. I don't, I don't want to, I want to know anything about what's going on right there, right? I'm not watching them. Um, I'm not concerned about that. So it feels strange to, for Jesus to be sitting there watching people make their contribution and like assessing and knowing how much they're putting in. Again, we get this kind of cultural distance. How did Jesus even know that, you know, she gave two pennies? Um, and, and there's different ways we could answer that. I mean, it could be that in his divine nature, he knew it. Um, but I actually think more naturally, um, like these other people coming in, you just hear this clunk, 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 ping, ping, ping of all of this money going into the, you know, the offering. It was this big, um, almost like a, a trumpet bell um, that came to a narrow, you know, down into the box. And so everything dropping in would make noise when the wealthy came in. And the wealthy probably didn't mind that it made that much noise, right? And when this poor widow came in, it was like, you know, not, no sound hardly at all. And so maybe that was how Jesus knew uh, what was contributed there in that moment. Regardless, um, like one author says, even though what she contributed made no difference in the books of the temple, here it is immortalized for us in the book of life. There's a huge contrast here in this passage. Everything that describes her is in the category of less. And yet Jesus describes her as giving more. Jesus, for Jesus, the value of the gift that she gave and the gifts we give is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. And that's where we come to this concluding thought that has been our theme. Jesus' ultimate authority deserves unrivaled devotion. So the proportion of her giving mattered more than the size of her giving. So I, I appreciate authors who talk about the responsibilities of Christians to give that don't just rest on the 
the tithe 10% kind of principle. But instead, they suggest that, you know, when a believer's means exceed their needs significantly, then maybe a reverse tithe would be in order. Like, if you can live off of 10% of your, your income and you can give 90, then maybe you should do that, right? Um, I think that captures some of the idea of this passage, and yet, in this case, for this woman, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't giving 90, right? She, she had virtually nothing, and she gave essentially everything. And what, what that does for us, I don't think, gives us an example that we should beat ourselves up about if we keep more, if we don't give a, a, an entire 100% in the offering today. That's not how we should view that comparison ourselves as we think about it. The point of that unrivaled devotion that she displays is to call us to recognize the ultimate authority of Jesus. The point that Mark is making for us is to stand before this, this display of Jesus' authority and recognize it really does demand and call for our unrivaled devotion. And that's not just a principle for us to apply in the realm of our finances, right? He wasn't exclusively focused on finances because he talks about the concern the scribes had for how people look at them. In that category, we should have an unrivaled devotion to the Lord and to his ultimate authority. It, 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 should, it should permeate and control every aspect and element of our lives. I've gone a little bit long. Let's, let's pray and wrap up our time together. Father, thank you for the beauty and the glory of your revelation. It is... It is truly uh, unmatched in the world of literature, in human wisdom. There is nothing that can compare to what we have studied and read in your word here today. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that are alert and aware to elements in our lives that are not surrendered to the ultimate authority of Christ. Lord, give us hearts that are sensitive and aware to, to ways that we have a tendency to look to Jesus as a Savior that is far too human, that is far too creation order bound, that doesn't fully respect and appreciate the ultimate authority he has to claim over all of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to reflect on the, the beautiful example of this poor woman who gave everything that she had out of devotion to her Messiah. And, and for her, even at that point, not even having yet met the Lord, not even having yet grasped the fullness of the gospel that we now know, the, the good news that follows this story very soon as Jesus is arrested, as he gives his life for us, as he conquers death and the grave, granting us power to, to not just compare ourselves to others, but to have the ability to grow and obey because of his spirit working in us. And so I pray that that work of the spirit would continue through our study here this morning and uh, that you would, you would bless in our, our worship the rest of this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.